These CSI shows are all so different. That spray on tan looks so great on you. I miss my Zune. Twilight deserves an Oscar. Chewing is really attractive. Pro wrestling is so real. My TV is too big. Could you please keep smacking your gum? I miss Rosie O'Donnell. Ah, that's, that's worth coming for just to get that, isn't it? It's good. Hey, welcome. Great to see you on a beautiful day outside. Boy, you feel that though last night? Just that little uh, reminder that we're at 5,200 feet and it's the end of August. So uh, we enjoy this while it's here and uh, get out our snow shovels. Great to see you all. We're on the, right on the tail end of a series on uh, things nobody expected Jesus to say. And uh, we'll be looking this morning at one of those topics. Pastor Brian, our lead pastor, will be back on the platform in a couple weeks, starting a new series, so we'll look forward to that. Last week, uh, we spent some time talking about choices and how we make choices and what choices look like. This morning, we're going to look at uh, one of the things that impacts our ability to make a choice the most, and that's our ability to see what we see, what we choose to see, what we choose not to see, what we could see if we wanted to see. And we'll be looking at a story out of Jesus' life in order to get some insight on that. So uh, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray and ask God to meet us where we're at. Lord, in a group of this size, every one of us, we're at a different place in our story. And you... You, you're inviting us to invite you to that very place in the story of our lives this morning. To meet us there, you have something to say to us corporately, but you have something to say to every single one of us created in your image. So we trust your Holy Spirit for that, and we invite you to nudge us to open our spirit to what you want to say in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's jump into the scripture. It comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2. The next day there was a wedding celebration in a village of Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivity, so Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. Things you didn't expect Jesus to say. But he continued, my time is not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus told his servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, Now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said, and then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you've kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory 
and his disciples believed in him. And after the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. This is a story about two conversations going on at the same time. Two levels. Two realities. Neither one negating or diminishing the other, but both just as real, just as important, just as significant. Level one was a party that Jesus had gone to with his disciples and his mother. It was a wedding gathering. And uh, we might read this and think, this seems odd that uh, they would be so alarmed that they just ran out of something. But there was another thing going on. When Mary mentions it to Jesus, he gives an answer that seems absolutely disconnected from the thing Mary is talking about. And so we get this picture of two conversations. Now, once in a while, I go to Billings, and occasionally I go there with somebody else. And once in a while, when I go to Billings with somebody else, I'm in the car with a hunter. And it will inevitably be true that when I'm riding with a hunter, as we drive along, they will say things like, oh man, look at that herd of elk on the hillside. And I will look, and I will see a hillside. And then they will go a little further and say, oh, there's all those antelope down there in that valley. And I see a stream. About the third time, I, I'm thinking, all right, all right. Are they, are they playing with me? Do they see a different dimension? Nah, it's just trained eyesight. Their eyes aren't better than mine, but they're hunters, and they have learned what to look at what to look for. They see on that brown hill brown animals, but they see distinctive features. And so while we're both looking at the same thing, I'm seeing one thing and they're seeing something else. And that's true in all of life, and it's certainly true in the spiritual world. The person who can see the other dimension or the other level isn't like, it's not like they got some mystical phone line to heaven It's they've just learned to ask a different set of questions. They've learned to look a little different way and they can see things. This conversation between Jesus and his mother Mary is about like that. The first was a conversation about wine running out. You and I might look at that divided conversation and wonder what's going on. It's almost like a a little boy comes to his dad and pulls on his pant leg and says, Dad, I have to go to the bathroom. And the father looks down and says, I wonder if I should learn Spanish. (laughs) So here's, here's Jesus and here's Mary. Now, here's what Mary's concerned with. The wedding. They're running out of wine. When I was working on a Ph.D. at the University of Birmingham in England, I would stay at the Asbury Overseas House when I would go over there. That's a house just for foreign students. And one year when I was there, I got acquainted with a family from India. Husband and wife, their three kids. 
They worked for the government in India, and they were at the University of Birmingham honing some of their skills. So I started asking them one night about how they met. He says, well, ours was an arranged marriage. I said, man, how does that work? Well, he says, it isn't that they force you to marry. It's that two families get together, and they think, hey, this son and daughter, that'd be a good match. And, uh, but they let you kind of meet with one another and date for about a year to really see if you think it's going to work. But if you think so, then that, that family arranged, those families arranged that marriage. Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, he says, weddings are a big thing in the part of the world we come from. Really? Yeah, big, big town events. So I said, well, like, how many people were at your wedding? He said, 5,000. I said, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, he says, it's even worse than that. He says, once you get your invitation list out and you get it done, then there's a certain group because of their status and relationship to the family. Out of that 5,000, he said, we had to hand deliver about 1,000 invitations because it would have been an insult just to get it in the mail or hear about it on the phone. I said, hand deliver 1,000 invitations. So, like, there's, there's some planning in that. And then they'd have the weddings. Yeah, 5,000. But because it's a poor, there a lot of poverty in that country, he said, after the wedding would be a big reception and everybody knew there'd be a lot of food and so a lot of people who aren't even invited to the wedding would dress up and they'd just be in the neighborhood. So he said, if you have a wedding for 5,000 at the reception, you'll have about 7,000. So you have to have like 2,000 food for 2,000 more people. So you, so you get the feel of what would happen in a festivity that is the center of the event, social calendar of a town, to run out of wine. It could have catastrophic humiliation as part of it. This Indian family said it is not uncommon for parents to mortgage their home and spend 30 years paying off the debt that a wedding cost. It is that important in that culture. And so that's what, that's what Mary saw. We're running out of wine. And Jesus said, but it's not my time. Almost always, all the way through the New Testament, when, when the word miracle is used, somewhere in the same passage will be the word sign. Meaning that all miracles were about two things, an immediate need and an underlying meaning. And there was an underlying meaning here. There was at this, least this meeting, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve were created, the Bible says it was God that brought Adam and Eve together into the same geographical place so they could meet one another. And then we get into the book of John. The very first miracle of Jesus was at a wedding celebration. Later in the New Testament... We're told, now husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. And in the book of Revelation, it invites us to gather around for the marriage supper of the Lamb. From Genesis to Revelation, weddings and marriage are a metaphor for spiritual realities. Jesus was talking at least about that, but he was also talking about his own redemptive calendar. Now, why does that matter to you and I, other than maybe just being interesting? Because if you can't see more than just what's on the surface, 
you will miss opportunities on one side and you will enter into dangerous territory on the other. There are some people who, like Indiana Jones, tumbling into a snake pit, step right into an absolute mess. You, you've been there. You've watched it. You stand back and you think, how can they not see the disaster they are about to enter into? You can watch a relationship. You think, what are you doing with him? All her friends say, what are you doing with him? He's got a nice smile. (laughs) And you just think, this is catastrophe. And you wonder, how how can they... You watch people make financial decisions that are just going to put them into bondage for years. Relational... We've all been there. We've all watched people just virtually disintegrate their lives and wonder how can they not... It's like they're wandering around in a fog. The scripture is pretty clear that one of the impacts of not walking closely with Christ is this clouded vision that keeps us from seeing. Satan counts on your ability not to either see or want to see at more than one level. I'm the chief strategy officer here at uh, Journey. The staff will tell you that one of my jobs in an organization this size is just to watch. I just pay attention. The staff would also tell you that all through the year I have level two conversations with people. Let me give an example of a level two conversation. I do consulting on the side with businesses, and so I'm invited to a large business. They call up, they say, we have an executive is in trouble. If we can't solve this problem, she'll end up being fired. She's been part of the company for a long time. She's done so well that we promoted her. Eighty percent of what she does in her promoted job, she was doing before, and she was performing excellently, excellently, and now... She's just disappeared. We can't figure out what happened to this woman who was doing so well. She's underperforming. Could you come and coach her? I said, well, I will come, but I'll only coach her if she invites me to be her coach. So you set up a three-hour afternoon meeting. I'll meet you in your conference room. They own the company, own their own building. We met in that room. She obviously not that excited to be there because it meant something's got to be wrong and we have this three-hour conversation. I said, so tell me what's going on. Well, here's one of the things she said. You know, I don't know. I was enjoying my job. I was doing well. and got promoted. And it's just kind of all falling apart. And so I said, well, what's really happening? Well, here's what's happening. She'd get an assignment or responsibility, and then she'd do it and do it and do it. And now here's the end of that job, and she'd, she'd start slowing down and missing deadlines and out here it just totally fall apart. So, okay. So I ask her this. You tell me why you are afraid of the finish line. Because for most people, when you get to the finish line, something good happens. Somebody celebrates, somebody's happy about it, but somewhere in your life you, lo- you learn that when you get to the finish line, something bad happens. Either somebody's going to criticize you, 
complain about your performance. I said, I don't know where it came from. I don't know how it got there. But your fear of the finish line is destroying your career. That's a level two conversation. That's not a conversation of some, that comes from some mystical understanding. There's some skill involved, but it's simply a matter of looking at what's going on. I was in a Starbucks in Portland, Oregon. Big Starbucks packed with people. I'm going uh, kitty corner across the room. Kitty, is that a North Dakota phrase? I'm going kitty corner across the room, and going the other direction is this woman who's just got her drink, and we intersect right in the middle of this Starbucks, crowded with people. And I stop, and she stops, and she says... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm always in somebody's road. You know, we all got lists. We got things to do, places to go. But in that moment, time slowed down. And I heard her. What must it be like to believe inside that you are a bother to everyone. That your space on the planet would be better used by somebody else or for something else than for you. Where did that come from? I don't know her name. I'll never meet her again this side of heaven. But if I could stand in a room with that woman and said, I heard what you said. And whether you believe it or somebody else believes it, it is not what God believes about you. And you and I, we race, we just race through life. And I'm trying to tell you why this should matter to you, but I'm going to tell you why it matters to me. At 62 years old, the greatest regrets of my life, the greatest, are that when some people I loved told me what they wanted, I was living so fast I didn't hear them. And because I didn't hear them, I couldn't make it happen. And by the time I heard them, reality had changed and I couldn't adjust it to help fulfill their dream. And I know, I know I could have made it happen if I'd heard them. In any event, there is more than one level going on. And you and I can know and see and hear that level, those levels, if we want to. Now, there's, there's the question, however, what do we want to see? Now, this is good news for me. I'm 62, and I've been told for years that science is proving that by the time you're in your late 30s or early 40s, your mind is already starting to calcify. And so you're, it's kind of like this, and then it's like this, and the only thing ahead is a cliff. And uh, so I, not good news. 
Well, in my research, I stumbled across this article about these Harvard scientists who found that there are three levels of critical thinking. Now, stay, stay with me. Three levels of critical thinking. And if you live in the third level, your mind stays active enough, it actually has the capacity to continue to grow. Good news for me. So here's the three levels. The first level of critical thinking is socialized thinking. That means that we get most of our ideas, how we look at the world, how everything works, from the significant people in our life. All of us have people in our lives that we have give, given privileged voice. And at level one, it's usually our parents, maybe a pastor, some significant teachers. And they've told us how the world works, and we have a great relationship with them. So we embrace that view, and that's socialized. Our view is based on what we've been told. Somewhere around the end of high school, early years of college we can move into a second phase which is called the self-authoring phase where we, we, we've taken what we believe is true about how the world works but we start asking it questions because we want to own it. We want to say, I believe this because I've chosen to believe it. And most of the time, we'll, we'll keep about 80% of what we were taught. But we might jettison a few ideas, and we may embrace a few ideas that were not the ideas of our parents, but they're, they're mine, and that's self-authoring. But there's a third stage, and it's called the self-transformative stage, and that's where I get to a place in my life where I've got a system. I've got a window that I look through when I'm looking at reality, but I'm able to step outside of myself And I'm able to look at my system. And while I like it, while I like looking at reality this way, I admit that there are gaps to it. There are places where it's not as strong as other places. There are places where I have this view simply because of the history of my life. And along with noticing the gaps and weaknesses in my own system... I can look over here and see a system of somebody else's that I would not fully embrace, but I can see that they have points of virtue in their system that could teach me something. That third place maintains our mind in an active posture that allows it to continue to grow in its capacity. Now, Here's why it matters to you and me. This is a church. There's about 350 to 400,000 churches in the United States. It's an industry that I've been in for 40 years. And in this industry, here's what happens. As an industry, it talks to you about growing and improving but it tries to freeze you at stage one. Because it's a lot easier to herd stage one people than it is to herd stage three people. But I believe Christianity is true, and if it's true, it can answer questions. And it actually gains in strength and energy as it is in the tussle and the combat of life. And people don't need to be 
frozen in stage one where, hey, you all show up and you sit quietly and I, this is a telling culture, and I tell you how to think, I tell you what to believe, and hey, if you kind of catch that and nod your heads in agreement, and oh, hey, then you're one of us. See? And see, I've, I've lived this because I've been in trouble most of my life in the industry I've given my life to. Because I ask why. It doesn't seem to be that dangerous a question, but in this industry it is. It's how I, if I'm over in stage three, then how I'm looking at the world looks different than if I have chosen to freeze my world in stage one or I have frozen somebody else in that stage. Now here's a practical application of that. Now, I love, we're part of a denomination. Runs from the Pacific Coast to the East Coast. And I love this denomination. I found Christ in this place, in this group of churches. That's how I became a believer. This denomination, which has a group of regions which are called conferences. So we're in what's called the Western Conference. It's Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota. We are in here with North Dakota. Together. We are the least populated conference in this entire denomination. And we have six of the eight largest churches in the denomination. Now, in this arena that I live in, where I interact with denominational leaders, when some of this data rolls out that in the least populated area of the entire denomination are six of the eight largest churches, you'd think when the meeting got over, others would come and, and actually want to know how we do it. They'd at least be curious. But I can tell you in those kind of meetings, when this kind of data comes out, nobody comes knocking at the door asking, how are you doing this? It's not because we are better than someone else. It's not because we are smarter. And it's certainly not because we don't make mistakes. We're always trying to learn and we make plenty of mistakes. But if in the least populated region of the United States of an entire denomination, you have six of the eight largest churches, you'd think somebody would want to know. If I had a hardware store in a large city and somebody else had a hardware store in a city just a fourth of the size and he was out selling me three to one, I'd at least want to know what's he doing, racing pigs in the backyard or what's, how is he doing this? This, I'm old, this is the third service, I'm tired now, so I'm going to say things I shouldn't. I'm just... Um, I'll tell you why they don't come and ask. It's the same reason you and I might not ask. Because they have shadow loyalties that trump a loyalty to do whatever it takes to connect people with God. And it's the same reason you and I might not want to know the truth. We might not want to know what's going on in another level or in another reality. 
or another dimension because we're not sure we want to give up some of the stuff we got. So I'm not sure I want to know. But I want to know, and I'll tell you why I want to know. Because whatever's true, that's where Jesus is at. He's not in my constructed reality. He's in what is true. And if I want to meet him, then I got to go to what's true. So that's where I go. No matter, no matter whether I'm always certain what I'm going to find there, that's where I want to go because that's where Jesus is. And I want to be with him. All right. Now, we're not going to get done. So if you're one of those people who start twitching if we don't fill out the stuff for the third point, I'm just trying to give you time to take a deep breath and get over that. So we're just going to... The reason I say that is I'm that kind of person. So uh, we're just going to look at number two because it's connected to number one, and then we'll be done. So in this account of the wedding, there were two levels of reality going on, both valid. The wine that was running out and the timing of Jesus in the beginning and the active activity of his redemptive purposes on earth. And you and I, we can look at reality and we can see multiple levels and tell what's going on. Now there's a second thing about really making something happen in my life. It's not only what I see, because if I don't see it, I won't be responding to it. It's also who I know. In my life, this point is one of the most important points I live. It's who I know. Mary had no ability to solve the problem of dozens of gallons of wine that were going to be needed to solve this issue. And though she didn't understand it all, she knew there was something about her son. Now remember, this isn't a son who's been doing a bunch of miracles week after week. This is his first miracle. It's not like she'd been watching him solve all these problems so she knew he could just make some more wine. She hadn't seen him do any miracles. But she knew from his birth on There was something different about Jesus. And so when this problem arose, she turned to her son. And though his answer seemed cryptic, having told her son the problem, she turned around and said, Now, you servants, you do whatever he says to do. And her solution was in who she knew. Now, here's why that matters. Often you and I will set a goal. It's, it's an ethereal thing. It's an idea. That's all it is at the moment. It's a goal. It's something we want, but it's an idea. And this, here's, the, here's the reality. This is the real seven, 24-7 world I live in. And then in order to get my goal into the reality, we, we sometimes try to change the goal so it will fit into my reality. Instead of changing my reality so my goal can nest in the reality of my life. Does he catch that? 
I change my reality so the goal can nest in the reality of my life. So, here's how this works for me. So I I finished my PhD work and successfully defended it, and I want to write my thesis into a book. My PhD is on the social factors that assist organizations in sustaining empowering environments. And I want to write it into a book. And I've never written. And if you looked at my notes, you'd see whatever I have written is not legible. So I've never been a writer. So I have this goal, and I've never lived in that reality. So you know what I'm doing? I am now, right now, in the process of creating a network of relationships with writers. Not with people who think I should write. Oh man, that's a great idea. Why don't you write a book? Not with people who read what other people write, but writers. So they can usher me into a reality that's not real for me. It's an idea. I want it to be real. I know that it's real for them, but I've never... Because it's not real to me, all kinds of distractions and other things can crowd into my life and can steal this away. I want to write a manual, so I found a professor who's a specialist in pedagogy or the philosophy of teaching, so she can talk to me about pedagogy. I've become a friend with a ghostwriter who's had books in the New York Times bestseller list. Because that world is real to them. They live in that world. And I'm trying to make that world real. And it has even a, 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 another level of application. So when I, when I told my relatives that I had finished my degree, my aunt, my 84-year-old aunt from, uh, from uh, Phoenix, Arizona, sent me a graduation card which was amusing to me since it reminded me of a graduation card from my children from high school. But uh, there he sent a graduation card and a big check. And she said, uh, in the card she says, you spend this on something that you would never buy otherwise. So I'm talking to my wife, Marcy, and I said, well, 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 well I'll just, let's just go out and eat. I'll just take you out to eat to a nice place and we'll celebrate. And you see, I didn't see But she saw. She already knew that I wanted to write. And she said, no, you need to spend this on something that will materially signify the goal of writing. So what do you you think? She says, well, we're going to Portland. So let's go to the Paradise Pen Company in Pioneer Square and you, will buy, you buy a pen you would not ever normally buy as a constant physical, see, physical reminder of your commitment over the next two years to write. So last week we were in Portland, Oregon at the Paradise Pen Company. This is a Visconti. Visconti created a series of pens that are the colors of Van Gogh's paintings. And when you buy one of Visconti's pens, 
It's in a box. When you open up the box, part of the side of the box is one of his paintings. This is from a painting he did of a bedroom where the floor is all orange. You can get, uh, you can get them like a starry, starry night painting. You can buy a pen that's all dark blue. I don't, I don't mean to be talking so sensuously about pens, but it just... <laughs> this pen costs $250. See, when you, when you put it, it's even magnetic when you put it back on. It... <laughs> and I got a bunch of fillers... Now, I'm nervous because I lose things. And, you know, I, I'm never very nervous with a Bic. But, but this pen, this is the physical reality dragging my goal, my ethereal goal into the real world. And for the next two years, everywhere I go, I'm going to write with this pen. Because it reminds me that this goal can be real. And a lot of us let Satan steal away our aspirations and our goals because we never make accommodation in the real world for that goal to nest so it can grow. Mary knew that it was who she knew that was going to change the material reality. If I want to learn to pray, I'm not going to just read a book on prayer. I'm going to find people for whom material reality changes when they pray, and I'm going to hang around them. You see? So how I see, and then based on how I see, how I change my material reality to accommodate the goal or the dream or the change I aspire to, that's how my life changes. And that's what the incarnation of Jesus was. We can't see God. This invisible God sent his son in material form. And Jesus said, if you want to see what the Father's like, look at me because I am the material reality of the invisible Father. Well, that's about enough, huh? Don't be afraid to see. It's true. You might see that someone you think loves you doesn't. You might see that a pain you thought you'd gotten over, you haven't. You might see that a dream that you hope for will actually never occur. But whatever you see, if it's real, that's where Jesus will be. And if Jesus is there, even if, even if as you look at what is real, there's a closed door, the presence of Jesus means there will be a different open door that you may never have realized was possible. Just like the disciples could never have dreamed, having already been passed over in the rabbinical system, that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, would invite them to be his disciples. Well, let's bow our heads and set aside the things you have, if you could, and finish up today. Thanks for being so patient and 
listening so attentively. It's possible today that some of us are afraid to see. We're afraid to see because for almost all of us there's already been pain and who needs more of that? But it may also be possible that by our fear of seeing we can't see open doors that Jesus himself would like to walk us through So could you imagine yourself with your heads bowed and eyes closed today? Could you imagine Jesus walking up alongside of you, coming down one of these aisles, and holding out his hand and saying, Come with me. We'll look at this together. And could you imagine you just reaching your hand out and saying, All right. If you'll go with me, then let's go look. And that whatever else you see, you will see the love of a Savior. And you will see doors that are open that you had never seen before. And just right where you're seated, you could pray a prayer to the Lord. Say, Lord, I I know that I've been afraid. But if you'll go with me, I'll reach my hand out and we'll go together. And I trust that if I find something there that's not good, you're bigger than that. And I trust that you'll show me things that I would have never seen that will be good for me. If you want to pray a prayer like that, just inviting Jesus to partner with you, You just take a moment. We're just going to wait a moment. And in your own words, you just tell them what's on your heart. Our eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. No one's going to embarrass you. But just to honor Jesus who's offering you his hand. If you've prayed a prayer like that, you're reaching out for his hand, would you just honor him by just slipping up your hand and putting it down and say, I I prayed a prayer like that. Yeah, all through the center here, over here on my right, my far right, way over here on the left. Here in the center again, thanks a lot. You can put your hands down. Over here on my right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the aspirations you put in our spirit. This is a rough world. We get knocked around. Sometimes we're not sure we want to see. Lord, for all these who've slipped their hands up, make it real to them that you're with them. And the seeing will always include opportunities, doorways that they've never seen. Send them your grace to respond in your power. Show them the next step. Thank you for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.